All right, let's take our seats together and turn to the passage that Brad just read, 2 John, the book of 2 John. If you don't know where 2 John is in your Bible, maybe this will help. It's between 1 and 3 John. Is that helpful? It's towards the end of the New Testament, just a few books before the end. Now, last week, we finished up our series in the Gospel of John, and we spent several years in John, so for this next series, I wanted to do a shorter book of the Bible, 2 John, and actually, we're going to work through this book uh, today. I was ready to move past the Gospel of John. You know, that's a bittersweet thing to finish up a book, but, uh, you know, I wasn't quite ready to leave the corpus of John the Apostle's writings in the New Testament. So that brings us today to this book, to 2 John, a book about truth and love. If you want a summary of this entire book, Truth and Love, there it is. A few years back, uh, a book came out by Gary Chapman, best-selling book called The Five Love Languages. Do y'all remember this book? I know many of y'all have read and been edified by this book. And the the premise of that book, if you remember, is that there are certain ways that people give and receive love. And Chapman distills our love languages to five. Physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and gifts. And what Chapman encourages as a counselor is he encourages, what he encourages uh, men and women to do, married couples, is to find the love language that communicates, best communicates to your spouse and use it to express your love for them. Now, this is tricky. This is not an exact science. You know, my wife, I've said before, like four out of the five love languages. She, she wants those four. And I, I know a guy who said that his wife's love language is whatever language he's not speaking to her at that time. <laughs> So, I mean, you got to stay on your toes with these things. But I, I think that book met a need in the church and has been edifying for many people. So here's a question for you this morning as we get started with uh, the gospel, or sorry, the second book, second letter of John and the apostle John. What is John's love language? What is John's love language? Here it is. It's truth. That's his love language. He wants, if he was here this morning, he would tell you, Harvest Decatur, I love you. Jesus loves you. And, and that love that we have, that love with the, that we share is bound up in truth, in truth. And you might say, well, what, is, what does that mean? And maybe some of you are kind of surprised by that because John's kind of like the apostle of love. Outside of Jesus, the person in the New Testament who is the most loving of, of everybody else is probably the Apostle John. You know, if you remember, he's the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest in the upper room during the Last Supper. He's the one in his letters that's always talking about loving God and loving one another and loving the gospel. He's this, I'm calling him the Apostle of love. He loved Jesus that much, and Jesus loved him too. And yet, when John talks about love, it's not in the way that a lot of people talk about love in our day. It's not like an anything goes kind of love. It's not a love that's more closely associated with infatuation or sentimentality. All throughout this book, all throughout Second John, 
John keeps saying again and again, love in the truth, truth and love. These two things need to go together. And that's, that's so foreign to the way that we understand love in our culture today, isn't it? I mean, I'll give you an example. Craig Blomberg says this. You can read this on the screen. He says, the need for genuine Christ-like love remains as great today as ever. Yet one of our greatest problems is defining love. Popular culture and literature, music, advertising, and the visual arts use, uses this word love to mean just about everything except what the Bible means by it. So even Christians are easily misled into thinking love is primarily a feeling, something that you fall in or out of. We equate it with lust or sexual intercourse, speaking of one's lover or making love. But throughout Scripture, love is first of all an action, an unconditional commitment, a promise that is never broken. You know, Aristotle many, many years ago spoke about, famously about the fish and he said that the last creature that you should ever ask about being wet is a fish because they don't know what it's like to be unwet. That's just, you know, that's their life. That's what they swim in. That's what they know. They don't know anything different. And I would just use that analogy to say that in our culture, we've been swimming in the sea of false love for years. We are constantly, in fact, divorcing truth and love. You can be loving or truthful but you can't do both because they're different or they're opposed to one another. And when the world thinks about love, they, I think they do think about something emotionally charged, something volatile, some you kinda, something you kind of go in and out of, or they think about sentimentality, or they think about something schmaltzy like a Hollywood rom-com. That's what we're swimming in right now as Christians. That's the world that we're in. And what John wants to help you do this morning, what I wanna help you do is get unwet from the world, step outside of the, the sea of false loves that we're swimming in and observe clearly what biblical love is, what it looks like, and how it adheres to truth. I want to help you with that. I've been helped by that this last week. And Second John, this book, is going to help us with this. So here we go. Here's your outline for today. I'm going to give you this morning five truths about love from Second John. Five truths about love from 2 John. Here's the first one. Harvest Decatur, love as a reality. Love starts with God's love towards us. We have got to get that down before we ever start to live out the love that God has called us to. God's love for us is the starting point for our understanding. God's love for us is love demonstrated par excellence. And when you try to remove God from the equation of love, as many people do, you end up with something that's not love at all. It's a perversion of love. So John starts his letter this way. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. He says, verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. The elder is John the apostle here. He's an old man by the time that he writes this letter. And he's the most long-lived apostle if you remember last week Peter Jesus just prophesied about Peter at the end of the book of John that he's going to die this gruesome death and you know what was Peter's response when he saw John behind him what about this guy what's going to happen to him is he going to die a gruesome death too and Jesus is like don't worry about that Peter you know you just worry about yourself but in actuality yeah John actually did live uh, several decades beyond the Apostle Peter. 
And he was, you know, he did a lot of stuff in those decades, including writing this letter, other letters, the book of Revelation. So the elder here is the old man, John, writing to the elect lady. That's a reference to the church. That's a term of endearment for the church. Lady here is the word kuria, which is derived from the word for Lord in Greek, kurios. The kuria of the kurios, the lady. That's the bride of Christ. That's the church. And John is speaking here specifically to a church that he knows. And her children. That's all the parishioners inside of this church. Okay? John, the old man, probably even having an elder role, some kind of overseeing role over this church, writes to them, giving them instruction, giving them encouragement. And he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, verse 1. Not, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John's a dense writer, just so you know. He packs a lot into a sentence. Sometimes you got to read it like three times to grasp all the workings of the sentence. And part of the reason he's writing so densely here is that he's trying to put this letter on one sheet of papyrus. Second John was the perfect link to fit on one sheet of papyrus, circulated easily. And so he's, he's packing a lot into this little letter. And notice one of the things that he's repeating besides love is truth. Whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also those who know the truth because of the truth which abides in us. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Do you think John's trying to emphasize something here at the beginning of his letter? Four times he mentions truth, 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 and even links his love for that church in truth, links God's love for us in truth. What does he mean by truth here? Is it like an adverb, like truly, I truly love you? No, I, I think he's making a reference. Well, he's making a reference to what Jesus referenced. Do you remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus came before Pontius Pilate? And he said to Pontius Pilate, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus was trying to evangelize Pontius Pilate in that moment. Everyone who listens to the truth obeys, listens to my voice. Remember what Pilate said to that? Remember how he responded cynically? What is truth? Well, Jesus was trying to tell him, but he wasn't listening. What is the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to? It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of our sinfulness in need of a Savior. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. That is the truth that binds all of us together in love, that motivates us in love to go out and tell people about Jesus. That is the truth that all other truths derive from. So when John says, whom I love in the truth, he means I love the church because of the gospel truth that we both embrace. When John says, not only I, but all who know the truth, he means all who believe the truth about Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and that he's coming back again. The truth is this, Harvest Decatur. Everybody listening? Without Jesus, we are destined for hell. We are destined for eternal death. We are destined to be responsible for our sins before a holy God. 
And the truth of the matter is that Jesus came, he took on human flesh, he died on the cross for our sins, and by faith in him, we can have eternal life. And if you know that truth, if you believe that truth, then your love for one another, your love for the world, your love for God will flow from that. You gotta have love based upon the truth. That's what John's going for here. And our love for each other originates from God's love, from God's love for us. We were in this lost state where we needed a savior. Let me just illustrate this for you another way. Let's say we're going for a walk together, you and me, just walking down here, Lost Bridge Road, you know, on the sidewalk. And then as we're walking, I, I turn to you and I say, you know, I love you. I really love you. And I want to show you how much I love you. And after that, I just jump in front of a car that's barreling down the road and I just kill myself right in front of you to show my love for you. How would you respond to that? Would you say, wow, Pastor Tony really loved me. <laughs> no, you would say, Pastor Tony is deranged, was deranged. He said, why would he do, that's crazy. That's not love, that's craziness. But, but let's, change that up a little bit let's say a car was barreling down on you 40 50 miles an hour and about to kill you and because of my love for you I push you out of the way and I absorb the blow of that car on your behalf what would you say about that Pastor Tony loved me he gave his life for me that was a real show of love sacrificing himself so that I could be saved that is the love that Jesus Christ showed us. He didn't go to the cross just to die because we weren't in a state of lostness and sin and eternal death. He knew we were going to die in our sins. So because of his love for us, he died for us. Isn't that good, Harvest Decatur? Do you know this? If you don't know that, you don't know love. If you don't know that, you don't have any way to love another person. Husbands in this room, how are we called to love our wives? as Christ did the church and gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's her before me kind of love. And that love flows from what Jesus did for us. Everybody got it? Truth, love, that's what John's going for here. Here's the second truth about love. Write this down. Love also requires obedience to God's commands. John says, verse four, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, some of your children anyway, just as we were commanded by the Father. You know, the greatest joy of every parent in this room is to see their children walking in the truth. The greatest joy of your elders, I'll just tell you right now, the greatest joy of your elders is to see the children of God in the church from age zero to age 100 walking in the truth, growing in the truth. The greatest, the greatest joy of every small group leader, the greatest joy of every Harvest Kids volunteer is to see the children of God at every age walking in the truth. And that's, this is what causes John to rejoice. I rejoice greatly to find some of you walking in the truth. Now, verse 5, I ask you, dear lady, Kuria, the, the bride of Christ, the church, now I ask you, church, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. You're walking in the truth, dear lady. That's good. Part of walking in the truth, part of growing in the truth, is that you love one another, that you love the other truth believers. 
in the church, those who know Christ and love Christ. You love Christ, you love them, and they love you back. You guys ever seen those uh, churches that are like, you know, truth, 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 and the people in the church kind of hate each other? You ever seen that before? Or maybe they hate, hate everything? As if the, the truth that they embrace fuels that hatred. John says it, it shouldn't be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. In fact, your, your greater embrace of the truth should increase your love for one another. Those things go together. Truth, love, truth, love. As you walk in Christ, as you grow in Christ, your commitment to the truth is going to grow and your commitment to love for one another is going to grow. They are mutually beneficial aspects of God's character. They're not at war with each other. They're not fighting with each other. You don't have to choose as a Christian, hmm, should I be truthful or should I be, should I be one of those truthful Christians or should I be one of those loving Christians? John doesn't allow you to make a choice between those two things. You know, I was sad and it's been a few weeks now, but I was saddened a while back about the death of Warren Wearsby. I don't know if y'all heard this. Good, godly pastor, Christian man, author, one of my favorite people in the world to read and um, so faithfully served the Lord as a pastor many years at Moody Church and other places. One of my favorite Wearsby quotes is this one, and I think this captures perfectly what John's going for here. Wearsby says, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. You're faking love. It's not a real love if it's not bound up in truth. I love that. I love that because I think that, that's it. That's it. That's what John's going for in Second John. That's what we're going for in the church. Not truth without love, not love without truth, but a perfect combination of love and truth. You know, and, and I've said this before, love and truth, they hang out together. They're friends. They have coffee together. They like each other. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, right? Love, love, love. Well, Paul also says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love and truth are friends. And you know what, Harvest Decatur, let's just speak practically here. Our world needs this. They need this right now. It's part of the reason I wanted to preach 2 John, because I, as I read this book and as I think this through deeply, I think this is what our world needs right now for Christians to lovingly speak the truth, for Christians to be truthful in our world in a loving way because the world isn't getting that and the world too would want to pit those things against each other. You know, love's at war with truth and you can't be both. Maybe you can't be both in the world but you can be one as a biblical Christian. You can combine those two as a Christian. And you're required to. We need to be truthful and we need to be loving. And let me, let me just say this. The loving thing to do in our world is not to affirm sin. Are you all with me? The loving thing in this world is not to affirm lies like gender is a social construct. And, and lies like marriage is not a binding commitment. You can just do whatever. And lies like unborn babies aren't worthy of being protected or of living. 
It is not loving to affirm lies in our world. That is unloving. And so finding this balance is essential for us as Christians. Not only is love committed to the truth, it's also committed to obedience. Look at verse six. This is love that we walk according to Jesus' commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Obedience, too, not just truth, your commitment to the truth, but obedience to God is a reflection of your love. Do you think about obedience that way? Do you, Christian? The reason I come to church, the reason I serve the Lord, the reason that I read my Bible, the reason that I'm committed to my husband, to my wife, to my kids, is because I love Jesus, and this is an outworking of my love for him. It's not just this like sense of emotions, like, oh, I, I love, and when I feel like it, then I do it. No, love is commitment, commitment that fleshes itself out in obedience, in obedience. Isaiah chapter one, this great book of the Old Testament, this great chapter of the Old Testament, there's an interesting place there where as Isaiah is rebuking the Israelites, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he basically says, I don't want your worship anymore. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your dead animals anymore. I want obedience. I want you to obey me. Because what the Israelites were doing in that day is that they were living sinful lives and indulging themselves and then just kind of trying to cover that over by bringing some animals to sacrifice before the Lord. Just, okay, this should pay for it, God. How about this? And God's like, I don't, I don't want your dead animals anymore. I want your heart. I want your heart that loves me, that obeys me, that lives out these commands. And then from that, you bring your worship. Now, John you know, his tone is different here than Isaiah. Isaiah rebuked Israel in Isaiah 1. In, in this book, there's actually a positive tone in Second John. You get the sense that John's like, you're doing good, church. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, add a boy, church. Add a girl, elect lady. Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. But the tone's about to change in verse 7 and and John's going to get straight with them about some areas where they're falling short. You know how churches are, right? I mean, we've read enough letters in the New Testament to know that churches do good. Churches have blind spots. They have errors that need to be corrected. And John's about to help them with this. So go ahead and before we get to verse 7 and following, write this down as number 3 in your notes. Here's a third truth about love. Love demands a clear rejection of error. Love demands a clear rejection of error, error, error. That sound like George Bush, don't I? Error. <laughs> Alistair Begg uh, says about verse seven and following, he says it's as if the, the Apostle John is putting a skull and crossbones over this next section to warn the church about poison. There's poison out there. What's the poison? Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Skull and crossbones. Poison. Watch out for this church. Watch yourselves. Verse 8. This is the first command in this book. 
Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So here's the error that we need to reject according to John. And I don't know why he's commenting on this. I don't know if they were having an issue in the church or maybe they were tolerating this or maybe it was just such a widespread problem that he felt like he needed to address this and deal with this. And, and maybe it was, you know, we're talking about 40, 50 years after Jesus' death. And so now there's some heresies that are starting to set in in the church and spread that happened even before in the, the days of Paul when Paul was writing his letter. And so basically what John is saying here is, listen, church, I love you. You're loved. Your love is committed to the truth. Here's an error that you need to watch out for. And as part of your love for God, you will get rid of this. It's a truth that compromises the gospel. It's a truth that says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. It's a truth that says that Jesus isn't returning in the flesh, that he isn't raised from the dead. And there might have been other kinds of, of untruths that were circulating at this time that he's warning them about. The reason I do think this is a, an issue, a prevalent issue in this time, is because John addresses it repeatedly. The first time was in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, where he says, Who is a liar? Who is the liar? But he who denies the G that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Then later in 1 John 4, 3, John writes, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. What John's referring to is people who are circulating in the churches, talking about Jesus, and they are antichrist in the sense that they are anti-Christ. They are against the truth of the gospel about Christ. And they're a type, you might say, of the future antichrist that will come that's recorded in the book of Revelation. And in John's day, we know this, there were um, what you might call proto-Gnostics that were circulating and talking about how Jesus, he didn't, he didn't really come in the flesh. He, he didn't really take on flesh. He wasn't really human. He was just kind of a, this phantom being that appeared to suffer. It was actually this, this Gnostic story that would circulate in John's day that went like this. When Jesus would walk on the beach, when he would walk on the sand, there were no footprints in the sand. Woo! Just kind of appeared to do that. And, and I don't know, maybe you could see how that, that would be attractive. Everybody likes ghost stories, right? And John says, don't fall for that, Christian. Jesus was in the flesh. Jesus did become human. Jesus is human, fully God and fully man. And he still is, by the way. And this is an essential church doctrine that John's willing to die on a hill for, even put people outside of the church for. Listen, Harvest Decay, let me say this. What he's essentially telling them is don't believe this, these falsehoods. And you could quote me on this. Unbelief as a Christian is just as important as belief. Did you know that? In your life right now, unbelief is just as important as belief. Here's what I mean by that. John Stott says this. You can read this on the screen. Unbelief can be as much a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. We should avoid both extremes. First of all, the superstition which believes everything. Ooh, there are no footprints on the sand. Jesus was here. Wow. Don't believe that. You need to unbelieve that, Christian. And then also, Stodd says, the suspicion which believes nothing. Those are both evidences of immaturity. 
You've got to unbelieve some stuff about Jesus that circulates in our day. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and say, Jesus isn't God, he never said he was God. You've got to unbelieve that. Are y'all with me? Or disbelieve it. Choose your verb of choice there. When Mormons come to your door and say that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and Satan and Jesus are brothers, you've got to unbelieve that. I'll even go further than that when prosperity preachers come to your door and tell you that God's utmost purpose in your life is for you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy as long as you have enough faith. You've got to unbelieve that, Christian. That does not square with what Scripture says. That's superstition, honestly. And by the way, the most loving thing that you can do for those who come to your door who are caught up in those lies, caught up in those false teachings, is tell them. Don't affirm what they're saying. Say, oh yeah, we believe in the same God. You don't. You don't believe in the same God. And don't say, let's just hold hands and sing Kubaya. What does it really matter? Don't do that either. That's not good for you. That's not good for them. That's not good for the truth. John would not be pleased with that. John says, verse 8, watch yourselves. Watch over your doctrine. It says elsewhere in the New Testament. The word here for watch is the Greek word blepo. It means look, see, pay attention. It's actually the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 3 when he says, look out, watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Both John and Paul want us as the church to watch out, to guard our doctrine, to guard the truth, and not buy into the lies that circulate about Jesus. Watch yourself, says John, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, the building of this church of yours, but may win a full reward. And as part of this watch yourselves language, John says this in verse 9. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is one of those passages you got you to kind of scratch your head and be like, okay, now what was happening? There were people that said, I'm a Christian, but I'm going beyond what Christ taught. How can you be a Christian who goes beyond Christ? How can you be a Jesus follower and yet say, I'm moving past Jesus now? It's, it's, it's nonsensical. There must have been some confusion in the churches in John's day. By the way, confusion has perpetuated for 2,000 years. Joseph Smith went on ahead and did not abide in the teachings of Christ. He had to make some stuff up. He had to add to Jesus' teaching. And now millions of Mormons are being led astray from the truth. Charles Taze Russell went on ahead and did not abide in the teachings of Christ. And now Jehovah's Witnesses lead millions of people away from the truth. Mary Baker Eddy went on ahead and did not abide in the teachings of Christ. She had to add something to it. And now Christian science leads millions, maybe not millions, thousands of people away from the truth. Confusion, confusion, confusion. You better watch yourself, Christian. You better be on guard. You better know the truth and believe the truth and be on alert when other people proposition error to you. Speaking of confusion, speaking of error, I was listening to a, a podcast a while back, Al Mohler's The Briefing, and 
Moeller mentioned that there's a this major lobbying group with atheists and humanists and other non-believer member organizations. And this atheistic humanistic group actually hired a Christian as its new executive director. And uh, this is a man named Larry Decker, a confessing Christian, let's put that in quotation marks, a confessing Christian is now the executive director of the Secular Coalition for America. But come to find out, Decker he calls himself a Christian. He was just raised as a Christian. He doesn't believe in the tenets of Christianity. He doesn't believe the Bible. He doesn't believe in anything Christian, but he still calls himself Christian. So what Moeller says is like, we have an, this guy Decker, who's one of those new kinds of Christians that doesn't believe in Christianity. Try to wrap your minds around that. And I wish that was isolated. I, I wish that was something that was, I see that more and more in our day. And I actually think, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, that's, that's easy. That's actually the easier thing to identify and point out as error. What I'm really concerned about in our day is people who use the Christian label and they, they don't espouse Christianity at all. They wouldn't pass the second John test. And I, I think we're actually reaching a place where Christian, the word Christian is so doctrinally ambiguous that it's, it's not even helpful. So, I mean, I don't know what you, what you call us now. I could add a lot of adjectives. Bible-believing, born-again Christians, real Christians, you know. Whatever we are, we got to watch out for those people who pretend to be us and aren't. Are you all with me? And that's why John said in 1 John 1, 1 John 4, verse 1, to test the spirits. And that's why he says here in verse 10, look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching about Jesus, that he took on human flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he resurrected, he's coming back again. If anybody does not hold to this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So go ahead and write this down as number four in your notes. This is counterintuitive, but biblical. Love rejects those who pervert the gospel. Love rejects those who pervert the gospel. You might say, Pastor Tony, that's so unloving. That's so unloving to do that. How could I, you know... Not receive a person. Actually, no, the loving thing biblically to do here is protect the truth of the gospel. That's even the best thing for those who pervert the gospel is to hold fast to the truth. And like I said, this does feel counterintuitive to us to, to reject somebody who perverts. It, fe it feels counterintuitive because we're too wet to use Aristotle's analogy again. We're too inundated with our cultural values to understand what God really demands of us. Love, real love has to be committed to truth. It has to be, says the Apostle John. Now let me just give a little historical background here to what John is writing about and some practical instructions for you because I know some of you are thinking about this even now. I want to be clear about this. In the ancient world, 
to receive someone into your house was a it was an act of hospitality yes but it was a symbolic gesture of commonality to receive somebody into your house like this was saying they're with us and I'm with them and and what John and Paul and other traveling teachers would do is they would go from city to city from house to house and they would stay with people and you would welcome them into your house you would allow them to teach and to to be a part of your community and take part in the community there were no you know there was no price line or hot wire you didn't stay at hotels or inns because those places were renowned for being houses of ill repute and brothels and so forth so you had to stay with believers and so, you know, what John is getting at here is that you need to protect the purity of the brotherhood. You need to protect the purity of good doctrine. And when you allow somebody into your house who's going to be a part of the family of God, you need to make sure that that person is a shepherd and not a wolf. Don't let the wolves into your house. Don't communicate to the church and to your children and to the people in your community, these wolves are with us. These wolves are just like us. You have to draw a line in the sand. Now, now, we need to be careful here because even in the life of Jesus, Jesus was interacting with unbelievers. Jesus would, you know, he was even accused of being a, a wine bibber, right? Somebody who was partying with unbelievers. John is not saying that we shouldn't evangelize, we shouldn't reach out to people, we shouldn't invite people in our homes, show hospitality to unbelievers. This is not just unbelievers. These are wolves. These are people that have perverted the truth and are going around teaching it. There needs to be a clear line of demarcation. Shepherd, wolves. Shepherd, wolves. Don't let the wolves into your house. Does everybody understand? And, and here's, I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, when Pastor Tony, when the JWs come to my house, and they're there all the time on my block, when the Mormons come to my house, they're dressed so nice, they have all these, this paraphernalia, what should I do? Should I let them into my house? Should I offer them a cold beverage? What, what should I do? Here's my answer. It depends. <laughs> You're welcome. It depends on how you frame that. Okay, if you're welcoming, you, your God is my God. Come on in. You know, come on in. You know, we're brothers and sisters. We're, we're if that's your intent, if that's what you're thinking in that moment, you can't do that and, and, and be obedient to Second John. You can't. I'm sorry. But if you're intent in that moment, and it's clear, and I, I know some of y'all do this, and I, I, I'm okay with this. If, if your intent is to bring them into your home, to be kind to them, to correct their error, to evangelize them, to lead them to the truth about Jesus Christ, then I, I think, yeah, I think you can do that and still be obedient to Second John. I will say this, though, just as a word of warning. You need to be clear about what you're doing with your children, that they are not us and we are not them. And we're doing this in an effort to correct their error and maybe even lead them to the truth. You need to be clear about that with your neighbors because as your neighbors see JWs going to your house, you're like, oh, are they JWs or what? You need to be clear. It's, what John wants here is clarity between wolves and shepherds, between those who belong to the truth and those who are perverting the truth. And so I'm, I'm going to leave that to, to conscience. Maybe that's something you need to talk through, think through in your small group and come to some conclusions prayerfully about that. And by the way, let me just say this too. Our loving commitment to the truth doesn't have to be rude. 
We can accomplish this. We can stay focused on the truth without being rude or arrogant. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not arrogant or rude. And that's not John's intention here is to send us out like the, you know, rude Christians that he wants us to be. No, it's to protect the truth and to, to make clear lines of demarcation between truth and error. And one final thing, thankfully John closes this letter on a lighter note. One last truth about love that John elucidates here in this book. Here it is. You can write this down as number five. Love receives fellow believers with joy. John says, John says verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face. Literally in Greek, it doesn't say face-to-face. It says mouth-to-mouth. And I'm glad the ESV translated it face-to-face because mouth-to-mouth means something different in English. (laughs) It either means CPR (laughs) or some guy making out with his girlfriend. That's definitely not what John is talking about here. What he's saying here, and he's saying it with a lot of tenderness, he's saying, I want to see you face to face. I don't want to just write everything down here because that's less relational than talking with you in person. For what it's worth, I'm glad John did write this down because now we can benefit from it 2,000 years later. But he does say, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Why? So that our joy may be complete. There is joy when believers come together. Love receives fellow believers with joy. And then John writes, verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. In other words, John is saying, a sister church, here where I am right now, greets you. Your sister. And I like that. You know, in fact, I I think I'm going to use that the next time I preach in Croatia. I'll say your, your sister church, Harvest Decatur, greets you. All the way, thousands of miles away in Decatur, Illinois. Love receives fellow believers with joy. Harvest Decatur. Love receives fellow believers with joy. Do you love fellow believers? Are you joyful to see them? Might say, sometimes I am. Do you love fellow believers? You might say, Pastor Tony, I I love Jesus, but I don't like Christians. No, you don't. If you don't like Jesus' followers, you don't love Jesus. The Bible says that clearly. If you do love Jesus, you'll love fellow believers. And you know what? I've said this before. I think it bears repeating. You better learn to love them because you're going to be spending eternity with them. So there. Let me ask you this. It's Memorial Day weekend. This is the time when a lot of us get, I think, uh, very thankful for those who have sacrificed for our country and we display a love for our country. Do you love your country? I do. I love my country, even with her flaws. But I'll tell you this, you're not taking this country, you're not taking the United States of America on into eternity. Did you know that? And besides the way, when we get to eternity, it's not a democracy. You don't get a vote. (laughs) It's a monarchy. 
Jesus is king and we bow down and we worship him. We're not taking the United States of America into eternity. We are taking our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. So you better learn to love them and greet them with love and greet them with joy. For what it's worth, I love you guys and I enjoy seeing you face to face. I really do. I love this church. I love meeting with you face to face. Most of the time. <laughs> when I'm not in that introverted mode. Let me close with this. The book of Second John, great book. Isn't it? Great book. There's more here. I've just in many ways skimmed the surface of what you can extract for yourselves instead of in, in terms of truth and application. But I'll say it again, Second John, this is this great book about love and truth. And so let me just close with an illustration on love and truth. In 1962, the great German theologian Karl Barth came to the United States to give a lecture at the University of Chicago. And Barth was an older man by this time. He had opposed Nazism and Hitler and had written thousands and thousands of pages of sophisticated and learned theology. And some of those pages I agree with, I agree with and some I disagree with, by the way. Well, Bart came to lecture as an old man at the University of Chicago, and he was asked at one point to summarize all of his theological learning. And they asked him, of all the theological insights you've ever had, what do you consider to be your greatest theological insight? What's the greatest thing you've learned in terms of theology? And this question piqued the entrance of the entire audience. They all leaned in waiting for, this, for the answer from this learned older gentleman. So Bart closed his eyes. He thought for a moment. And then he smiled. And he opened his eyes. And he said to them, the greatest theological insight that I've ever had is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it, right there, church. That's love. That's the love that we embrace by faith, receiving the grace that God gives us. And when you get that, when you really get what Jesus has done for you, what you deserved and how Jesus loved you and protected you from that, then you know how to love. Then you know how to love other people. Let's bow in a word of prayer together and ask for God's help in this.